What if I told you I had a guarantee repair for a cell phone that isn't working correctly because of water damage? All right, so that, that piques some of your attention because you've tried some of the things that we tried before, like submerging it in rice. I mean, is that really highly technical, right? Um, maybe you've tried, you know, just draining it, putting it in front of heat, various things. But if I said, I'm going to give you a cheap, inexpensive fix to a phone that's been damaged by water, and I'm going to tell that to you, how many of you think that you could identify the people who would most likely be taking notes and really caring about what I'm about to say? It would be the people who, right, the people who either maybe you had to put your iPhone 12 in rice and now you're back using your iPhone 3, right? Because you can't, you know, and it's barely working and struggling. You're like, tell me that. I need to know it. Or maybe you're on that flip phone because yours is damaged and, and, and messed up. Or maybe you submerged yours in water this morning in the bathtub, right? And, and, and you're in a crisis right now because you don't have a phone at all. Those who have the biggest need, felt need for something, are the people who are going to pay the most attention, right? Those who think, well, I've got a lot of money, I'm pretty set, I can easily buy another phone, they're expensive, but I wouldn't even notice the money being gone. That's not very many of us, but a few people might be in that situation. Others might say, I don't need to know how to fix a phone that's been submerged in water because mine's not damaged right now, so at this moment, I don't care. Others may say, man, I have a life-proof case. I mean, my case, it can withstand water, it can be submerged in water, and it does nothing to my phone, so I'm good to go. I don't really need to know that information. Well, I think when it comes to hearing about the gospel and hearing about the cross, many of us can take that illustration about the phone and apply it directly to this passage of Scripture. Here's why. If you think that the gospel is kind of like your life-proof case, that it's something that protects you from hell and gives you eternal life, I don't need the gospel. I've got my trip. I've got my ticket. I'm ready to go. No big deal. The gospel is something that I did in the past and believed in the past, and, and you know, what relevance does that have to my life today? Others of you have really no need for the gospel because you don't really care about living the gospel because your life is being ordered in a way where you're living life on your terms. And you don't really want the gospel. You don't really care to hear the gospel. And so there's no felt need for the gospel for you either. Well, as we go through John chapter 3, one of the most familiar passages of Scripture, I want to encourage you to not to check out in this passage. Because just like you needed this information, possibly for your phone, all of us need this information for our lives. Not just for eternity, but for living a victorious life. Jesus said he came to give us life and to give it to us in the fullest. And I dare say if we begin to poll this crowd that many of you would say life doesn't feel full of joy in Jesus. In fact, I'm tired. Maybe like Jane, you're just fatigued. Maybe you just feel weary. Maybe life has just burdened you down. And Jesus doesn't seem to be delivering life to its fullest. I want to encourage you to today, the cross has answers. The cross speaks directly to your situation. And I'm going to tell you how. We're in John chapter 3, 
and we're going to be going from verse 14 through 21. I'm going to, if you'll go ahead and turn there or turn in the app, and then I'm going to just read verses 14 through 16, then we'll pray and we'll look at this full passage of Scripture. John writes the words of Jesus, And as Moses lifted up the serpent, or the snake, in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Let's pray. Father God, we admit, all of us must admit it, sometime, maybe more often than we dare to admit to ourselves, that we're not humbled by the cross. And we are not living a life of joy and delight in you. And it's been maybe a long time since we've been broken over the cross and what you did on our behalf. And Father God, I pray that each person in here will, through the Holy Spirit's prompting and power, will be reminded of their need for the cross, the sacrifice, the cost of the cross. And the very reason why we're sitting here today is because of the cross. And God, I pray you will remind us, and not just remind us, but stir us up to live life with victory, with knowing that we can have joy through you because of the cross. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Just a quick review on last week. Jesus is talking to a guy named Nicodemus, and he's a guy who is of the elite spiritually in Israel. I mean, if there's any guy who knows the word, it's Nicodemus. Yet, as Jesus is talking to him, Jesus looks him in the eye and says, you've got to be born again if you're going to have the kingdom. If you're going to be in the kingdom of God, you've got to be born again. Imagine the shock that Nicodemus would experience at that point. And we talked about this last week because he felt like he was not only qualified, he was probably thought he was overqualified compared to the average Israelite, the fact that he was going to get into the kingdom. And I made this point, and I think it's worth stating again today because many of you, here's why, many of you have friends, relatives, who are truly putting their salvation hopes into the fact that I think I'm pretty good, I think I'm good enough. And oftentimes that's involved with comparison to other people. I'm not as bad as that person. Surely I'm going to get in because I've been a pretty good moral person. Here was what I said last week, and please remember this. Those of you who know this, this would be an excellent way to take your relatives or friends to the gospel in a way to show them their works aren't going to get them there. If Nicodemus cannot enter the kingdom by virtue of his standing and works, what hopes is there for anyone who seeks salvation along such lines. If Nicodemus, a guy who memorized most of the Old Testament, or a lot of the Old Testament, who was a teacher of the law, who lived an exemplary moral life, if he had to be born again to see the kingdom of God, then how much more you and I? And so what a great line of conversation with your relative who says, you know, I think I'm gonna be, I'll be good enough. Take them to Scripture. Open them to the most familiar passages of Scripture that they know, John chapter 3, and show them Nicodemus. And then Jesus speaks of salvation as being a work of the Holy Spirit. And he compares the Holy Spirit to the mystery of the wind 
and how the wind appeals, he says the Holy Spirit appeals to a person's heart and in a mysterious way speaks to a person and draws that person to Jesus. And while God uses intellectual arguments, he uses persuasion, he uses a good moral life and example, at the end of the day, people are drawn to Christ through the prompting and power of the Holy Spirit and through God's initiative. And how that we can, through our prayers, we can make a difference in the life of others. We want to speak and we want to persuade. But first and foremost, we want to pray for the Holy Spirit to begin to do a work in them. And then we said being born from above begins this radical transformation. So a radical transformation happens. But then, practically speaking, we begin to become who we are in Christ. That there's going to be a change in our life. There's going to be signs of change, and there's going to be a difference in our life because of this new birth that's taken place. We're going to have new desires and new ambitions, and we're going to count the cost for following Jesus. And so here's the big takeaway for today as we get into John chapter 3, verses around 16, where we're so familiar. To grow in Jesus, we must taste his goodness. And the cross is the ultimate expression of God's goodness. Just leave that up there for a second. Let's look at that. To grow in Jesus, those of you who are Christians, who think, I don't really need the gospel, I got the gospel. To grow in Jesus, we need to taste his goodness. And there's no other place better to go to taste the goodness of God in Christ than the gospel, than the cross, sitting at the cross. And before we jump back into John, I'm going to read to you two verses from Luke where Jesus is giving a parable, probably, if not the shortest, one of the shortest parables in Scripture in Luke chapter 7. And Jesus makes his point. He says, A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owned 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which one of them will love him more? One person, 500, the other 50. Who's going to love him more if the debt's canceled? Jesus' point, the greater the forgiveness, the greater the love. The greater the forgiveness, the greater the love. So when we revisit the cross, when we go to the cross, if you don't see the fact that God has forgiven you incredible, unimaginable amount through his grace of his son, then the cross will be very little meaning to you. As long as you think, I'm doing pretty well. I'm not a bad person. You know, I, I go to church a lot more often than other people. I'm a pretty decent fella. You're not going to see your sin and what it cost. What we all have to do is to see that we've been give, forgiven so much, whether it's a pastor, an elder, a deacon in here, or whether we're talking about a guy who wandered in here today and professed his faith in Jesus Christ during the worship time. And he's lived a tough, difficult, hard life, and he's done drugs and alcohol and all the stuff that we say makes somebody an awful person, right? But we can have the moral person here who thinks, I'm pretty good. Jesus has forgiven both eternity and hell, separation from God because of sin. So please, this matters to you. It matters to me. 
and you will taste God's goodness today in direct proportion to your embrace of the cost of the cross. And as you return there again and again, day after day, your love and your gratitude for Jesus will grow. So Jesus continues to talk to Nicodemus. And in verse 14, he gives this example that Nicodemus would be very, very familiar with. He would have taught this in his schools. He would have learned this as a young boy. And Jesus says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Well, Nicodemus would have been very familiar with verse 14, that illustration of Moses lifting up the serpent in the wilderness. What's that about? If you're newer to church, you don't know the Old Testament very well. Well, when Israel left Egypt and was headed to the promised land and they were wandering the wilderness, typical of the rebellious attitude, they began again to grumble and complain and to rebel not only against God, but against Moses as the leader. They were being disobedient. And so God, his patience had ran out. He sent snakes into the camp, into their midst, and many people were bitten, and many people died as a result of the snakes. But God told Moses, if you want to save the people, here's what you need to do. Make a bronze snake, and you put it up on a pole. And when the people come and they look at the snake, and they believe in God's promises, his they trust him that he's providing a path to life, then they'll be saved. Nicodemus knew that story. He knew about the bronze serpent. He knew that they looked upon it, they would be healed and they would have rescue from the disaster. And so Jesus says, Nicodemus, in the exact same way that the serpent was lifted up, the Son of Man will be lifted up. And whoever believes on him, Jesus says, whoever believes on me will have eternal life. And John, we mentioned last week, is notorious for using words that have double meanings. Throughout this book, we're going to see and point out times where John uses a word, and he's got two images in mind. And the same is true right here where he talks about being lifted up. Context is king, right? Context is everything. Those who study the Bible know that you've got to read Scripture in context. And so one of the bad things about breaking a Scripture up and looking at different parts is sometimes we forget the previous context Well, let's skip back to verse 13 just for a second where Jesus said this. He said, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. All right? So Jesus says, He descended down from heaven. And so the point that Jesus is making and John's reiterating in the way that he writes this is that Jesus will be lifted up, what's called Jesus' exaltation, that Jesus humbled himself. Philippians says that Jesus humbled himself like a servant. He came to earth, took on the form of a man, and, and, and lived life like us. We talked a lot about that in chapter 1. But that's not the end of the story, that Jesus will be exalted. He, he will be lifted up, to once again, to his place of exaltation as king of the universe. And so John is pointing to that, that Jesus came down, but he's also going to be exalted again. And so Nicodemus is being challenged to turn to Jesus for his new birth. Look to Jesus. Look up like the people in Israel looked up to the serpent. Look up to Jesus, and there you'll find life, Jesus says. Look to me. Jesus also was speaking of his crucifixion. Now, Nicodemus most likely would not have understood this right at this point. He would not have known Jesus 
was going to be crucified. But we're going to see Nicodemus appear later on in this gospel. And we hope that Nicodemus, at the time that Jesus was lifted up on the cross for his crucifixion, that Nicodemus thought back to this conversation that he had at night with Jesus. And he remembers, this is not an accident. This is not Jesus' life being taken away from him. This is just Jesus laying down his life. And he's being lifted up. And those who look upon Jesus, believe in Jesus, verse 15, those are the people who have eternal life. And so he says, verse 15 and 16, Jesus says, whoever believes has eternal life. And then verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Just like belief was what the Israelites needed to do. Trust. Look at the serpent on the bronze pole and trust God has provided a path to life. Trust. Put your trust there. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to beat, beat your back and, and whip yourself and humble yourself to the point where you're, you're bleeding and you're, you're ashamed because of your sin and you need to be so awful and just, uh, just, be, be, uh, just down and, and, and low before God. And then maybe if you do that and then you get up and you go and you're good to your neighbor and you don't ever sin again, then you'll have life. That's not what it says. He says, I need you to look up at the serpent. And he says, Jesus is going to be lifted up. And when you look up to him, when you trust him and believe, you won't perish, but you'll have everlasting life. So just like the salvation God offered through the snake in the wilderness, it's free Believe upon it. You don't do something to earn it. And then we have to ask the question, if you're newer to the gospel message, why would God have to provide a path for salvation for sinful, rebellious, grumbling, sinful, awful people? And why would he have to provide such a costly path to forgiveness? Because verse 16 says it clearly. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. For God so loved the world. It's pretty amazing, right? That God loved sinful, rebellious people. Now, our culture is getting less and less churched and knows very little about Scripture, it seems, anymore. But one place where you often see John 3.16, right? You're watching the World Series or the NLCS last night. You may see a guy holding up a sign, John 3.16, Back when Tim Tebow played, you know, his eyes, John 3.16. Caused a lot of people to Google John 3.16. What's that about? Because we live in a very post-Christian culture where people are even forgetting and not knowing what John 3.16 is about. And, And a lot of culture still does understand this concept of John 3.16 to some level. That God is love. That God is love. And we have a strong movement in our culture to think that, okay, if you're going to accept God and you're going to believe God, you believe that God is just a God of love, period, end of sentence, that he's not a God of justice. And that's a problem because you can't understand the good news until you understand the bad news. And Jesus clearly says that he comes and he loves and he gives because he doesn't want us to perish. So Jesus came to the, for the purpose of saving people from perishing. Look at verse 17. says it again. 
For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So it shows, verse 18 shows why people are perishing and why Jesus had to come, because they do not put their trust and faith in Jesus. And in verse 18, it even reiterates this even further. For whoever believes in him is not condemned. So you believe in Jesus, you're not condemned. But whoever does not believe, here it is, is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So according to the Bible, every person is guilty of sin. Romans 3.23 says it clearly. And we deserve to be eternally separated from God for all eternity. So you don't work your way into a state of being condemned already. He says that's just the nature, that's present tense. He says you and I are condemned already apart from Jesus Christ. We have already been declared guilty because we are guilty. And Scripture tells us, and here's where culture really stumbles and where a lot of the church is stumbling today is the fact that God's wrath is upon those who don't believe. Those who, by default, by their very nature, in Adam, they don't know God. They don't know Jesus. By default, they are under God's wrath. But culture wants to leave it at God is love, and God is love. God did not have to send Jesus. But God is love, and God's not wrath, but God is just. He's just. And it's so important that we have a proper understanding of God and His wrath, His justice. Because you will be dealing with people, and I will be dealing with people, as we share Christ, which we should be sharing it. Blessed are the feet, beautiful are the feet of those who share the gospel. How will they hear if somebody doesn't tell them? All right, so more and more, culture's forgetting. It's got to be back on us to go and share and give the gospel. And so you have to have an answer. And you have to know Scripture. And somebody says, why did Jesus have to die? What, you know, why did he have to go to a cross and go through this cruel death? What was the purpose behind that? And, and, and what is God like? And who is God? Somebody wrote a book in, in, about five or six years ago. And it was 300 children from all over the world were supposed to draw pictures of what they thought God looked like or what God was like. And these are the two the ones I found the most humorous. One, the left one, because not because of the humor, but a lot of people think that God is like that. He's, he's just a fiery, angry God who's just ready to zap and kill everybody who gets out of line, even a little bit. And then the guy on the right, I, I, I like that kid who, you know, God has all these computer screens and he's checking up on us and he's watching us. He knows what's going on, right? And probably he has a button there to push, you know, if you do wrong, boom, he's going to zap you. And, and that's a lot of people's image about God. In fact, I found that a lot of times people who grew up in church, who were raised in church, those are the ones who kind of see God as being this unhappy older man who's just grumpy and who's looking for any excuse possible you know, to take his heavenly bat and just bop you on the head whenever you get out of line. But having a proper view of God is so critical and I loved John chapter 3 because it says that God demonstrated his love to us. He showed it in a way that's just 
just exceeds our, our imagination. We could never have come up with a plan like this. It's a God thing that his love that he gave his only son. And so God is love. God is not wrath. Nowhere in scripture will you find God is wrath. God is love, but the reason he displays his wrath is because of sin. That we're all rebels against God. We're all rebels against God, and God's anger against sin represents his personal response to sin. And this is important right here. Pay attention. Judgment is not merely a cause and effect kind of thing with God, but it's God's holy wrath against sin, which has to be distinguished from our sinful human anger and wrath. God isn't reacting to a circumstance and situation. God's nature, his holiness, demands justice. This is who he is. Be holy as he is holy. God is holy. And sin is a failure ultimately to glorify God and to not give thanks for him. Romans 1.21. And that's important as well. Because we want to make sin being just those things that that other person does. That we look at those like list of five or six things, and those are sins. And fortunately, I'm a good enough person that I don't do these most of the time. And so I'm a pretty decent person. But sin at its essence, Scripture tells us, is a failure to bring glory to God, to glorify God, and to give Him thanks. And so it's a flagrant refusal to submit to God's lordship and to acknowledge His greatness and to give him the life that he gave us in the first place. And so those who sin rightly deserve the judgment of God. And here's the gospel. Only the perfect obedience, only perfect obedience will satisfy God's justice. Only perfect obedience will satisfy God's justice. We see that with Adam. Think about the story of Adam in the garden. One sin severed God and Adam. One sin separated them. What does that tell you? It tells you that sin is so horrible, it's so awful to God's nature and his character that it demands punishment. It demands justice. And so God's anger is holy and right. It's not reactionary. It's holy and right. And the problem is, as Christians and non-Christians in the world, we look at, can't, at, 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 at sin as possibly maybe like a minor defect or a little problem that we're working on or we haven't quite arrived, whereas God sees it as a disfiguring cancer, something that cost his son. And so how does this practically apply? How, does it, how do you say, I need this, I need this today, is the fact that you have this new attitude and new relationship with sin, which says God hates and despises sin. And as a result of understanding God's view of sin, you run to Jesus again and again and again for his righteousness, because you have none of your own. And so only those who are aware of God's wrath against sin are truly going to be amazed at his grace. As long as you're not amazed at are aware of God's wrath and how terrible God's wrath is against sin, then grace is not going to be a big deal for you. It's almost like something you're entitled to or you deserve it. 
But when we, our relationship to sin changes, then all of a sudden we have a greater appreciation for the gospel. So God is loving and he's also just. And so he has to find a way to fulfill both sides of his character. So how does he do that? If you're giving somebody the gospel, how does he do that? The theological term is the penal substitution, which again, I put these, point these things out, but a lot of you aren't aware of these conversations that are happening in the background of the churches, in these rooms and churches where things are just being rejected uh, that have been part of the church's belief for hundreds of years, thousands of years. And this idea of penal substitution is something that's not real popular anymore. What is that about? Explain that to us, all right? God inflicted upon Christ the suffering that you deserved and I deserved as the punishment for our sins. God inflicted upon Jesus the punishment and suffering that we deserved. We deserve to be there suffering for our sins. We deserved death, eternal separation from God. That's how big sin is to God. But as a result of this exchange that took place, we no longer deserve punishment because Jesus took it on for us. That's grace. It's amazing. That's why the song says amazing, amazing grace. How could Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, how could He die for me and my sin? For God so loved the world. And His justice demanded a sacrifice. God couldn't just say, I'm just going to overlook it this time. I'm just going to pass by it. But sin was such an atrocity that it demanded a sacrifice. And instead of you and instead of me being the one that took that punishment, Jesus, the Lord and creator of the universe, he took it on our behalf. And as a result, not only are we no longer under God's wrath, that we have the very righteousness of God. And Paul makes it clear that having the righteousness of God is not an excuse to sin or live in sin because we know how awful sin is and how, that we, how can we who are now dead to sin live any longer in it? How can we do it? It's just beyond our imagination. How could we embrace sin when sin costs Jesus everything? How can you do that if you really know Jesus and have a relationship with Jesus? How can you just love your sin, embrace your sin, live in your sin? But the reality of the truth is, even though we should never use it as a license to sin, that all our sins are forgiven. Not just the sin that John Woodrum committed yesterday or the sin that he committed today, but the sin I commit tomorrow and next month and next year. Clean, forgiven, perfect in God's eyes because of Jesus Christ. Amazing love. How can it be that you, my God, would die for me? God has offered us an amazing gift. But why don't people accept it? Why do people pretend or go through the motions? Well, it's very clear in this passage. Verse 19 through 21. And this is the judgment. The light, who's Jesus, has come into the world. 
And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So it's very clear. People reject Jesus because they love their sin. They love darkness, and they hate having it exposed by God's light. Verse 19, because their works are evil. Their works are evil. I, I constantly told my Bible class this last nine weeks at GCA, and I've, I've said this before here, rarely do young people, almost never do young people, walk away from their faith for intellectual reasons. It's almost always a smokescreen. It's what Jesus is saying here. They walk away from the truth because they love their sin. They love indulging themselves and just doing what feels right in the moment. And intellectual reasons are often, oh, I just can't buy that Jesus died on the cross and rose again stuff. You know, I heard that from my parents. But if you examine their life as I have and talk to many, many young person, student over the years, you find at, the heart is, at their heart is saying, I want to live my life the way I want to live my life. I want to live life on my terms. I don't want to be restrained by some moral code. Now, if you've been a Christian for very long, you know exactly what I'm talking about here. That living life on your terms always leads to disaster, right? It does. It always leads to disaster. It always leads to pain and hurt and damage in the long run. In the, in the short term, it may feel pretty good. It may seem pretty much like, I'm so glad I threw those chains off of my parents' belief and the way they taught me because this is freedom. Man, I'm, I'm just living life. Let it play out. Let it play out. Even for a person who's not a believer, ultimately, their sin will find them out. Ultimately, what you sow is what you reap, and it'll come back to you. But how, I mean, for the Christian, for sure, you're going to be miserable in the long run. You're going to be, feel awful. If, if you're in here today, you've been hiding your sin, covering your sin, making excuses for your sin, coming up with some system of justification for what you're doing right now, you're not going to be happy. It's going to play out in the end, and you're not going to have the joy that God wants to give you because you're working against who you are in Christ. Here the Holy Spirit lives in you, resides in you, and He's bringing holiness and, and, and life into you, and yet you want to just say, I'm embracing this sinful lifestyle that's contrary to who you are in Christ. So Jesus says, people love darkness because their deeds are evil. I'd like to step back for a second and just make an application here because we do live in an age where a lot of times as parents, in a, and I'm a parent of college-age students, that you have a lot of kids who grew up in church who once they get out on their own, out of high school, out of youth group, they begin to abandon the faith. And, and it gets really nervous for parents to see things happening, and you're like, oh, you know, what's going on here? Let me give you some really, really practical things as a parent. If you see this happening in your child, first of all, don't panic, okay? Don't panic. Oftentimes, 
kids who have been raised up in church, they've just embraced a lot of their faith without really thinking about it, without really putting it to the test, without really digging in for themselves. And so a lot of times when you see maybe a rejection or what seems to be maybe a pushback, maybe it's them just struggling for themselves and they're trying to figure out, you know, what do I believe? Do I just believe it because mom and dad said it or because Grace Church said it and Pastor John said it, Jeremy Loki said it, or do I believe this for myself? So don't panic at those moments. Here's what you should do. Focus on the gospel, what we talked about today with them. Focus upon the gospel. Here, because here, here's the problem I see just real practically with a lot of Christian well-meaning parents is they bundle a lot of other things with their faith and so like a rejection of a political system or an economic system or, you know, a, a certain way of worshiping or, or something like that, that's all bundled in like with like, you're leaving, where are you going? You're, you're abandoning the faith. Well, maybe it's not a gospel issue. Focus in on the gospel and don't think because they voted for the person you didn't vote for, they've, they've given up on the faith, right? Be careful what you bundle in there together. And as you're communicating with them, be smart about it. Point them to Jesus. Point them to the cross. I'm sorry, a political party is not going to save your kid. Jesus saves your kid. And so focus in on Jesus. Focus on the work of the cross. Focus in on what I talked to you about today, that God is both loving and just. And so God can't overlook your sin because he is just. So you, you stand strong against the sins that are mentioned in Scripture and talked about in Scripture. You don't compromise on that. But you point to the love of, of, of God. You point to the, the prodigal son. And you stand there and you embrace and love your children. You don't get angry with them. You're, you're their friend. You listen. You speak. And you talk Bible truth to them. And then, most importantly, just pray for them. Pray for them. Pray for the work of the Spirit in their life. Don't make it about you. Don't say to them, where did I fail you at? Or, you know, where did we go wrong? You know, that's what parents typically do, right? They turn it all about them, right? Like, what, what do we do wrong here? What, what are you doing this for? Why are you doing this to me? It's not about you. Pray for them. Seek God on their behalf and preach the gospel again and again to them. And, they, and, and, and God has a way of wooing back, as I said last week, his children those who truly know him. But just remember, when they're in sin, sin's not rational. It's not. Sin is not rational at all. And in the darkness of sin, the gospel looks cruel, and they'll tell you things like that. It's just cruel. It's, it's that God would do that to his son, and, and the cross looks like foolishness to them. In those moments when they're in their sin and embracing their sin and loving their sin. But Jesus is the light. And when you preach Jesus, the light exposes the sin. Jesus exposes it. Verse 20, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. And so you preach Jesus. Pray. Trust the Holy Spirit's work in their life. And know that in the end, if they're truly a believer, God's going to discipline them. And God's going to get a hold of them and bring them back. And where their path that they're on is going to end in hopelessness. And it's going to end in worthlessness and disaster. 
It will. It will. Some of you remember the song, Burdens Are Lifted at Calvary. I want to encourage you today to, to think about the gospel for yourself, not for anyone else but yourself. And know that when we allow the work of Jesus and the light of Jesus to just come into our hearts and expose the darkness and draw us to himself and see Jesus lifted up, exalted, crucified, risen again, just something amazing, amazing happens in our heart. And we're, who, the, the person who knows that they've been forgiven much, the response is one of, thank you, Jesus. And so we have to remind ourselves day after day of the gospel. And so our head, what we want to remember today, intellectually, that God loves you and Jesus provided a way for you to be made right with God. Jesus took the punishment that you deserved. And so how does a heart change follow this? Just keep coming into the light. Don't hide. Listen, look here. Don't hide. Don't let pride get in your way. Don't stuff down those sins and those envy and that, and that jealousy and that, that, those anger feelings and those feelings of bitterness. Don't stuff that in and then put on a facade of, I'm spiritual, I'm pretty happy, I'm a good Christian. Bring that to Jesus. Bring it into the light. And this constant rhythm of just, I'm confessing my sin to you. God, you're not angry at me anymore because of Jesus Christ. You're for me. You're not against me. So I can bring it to you. You already know. You've covered it. But I want to bring it to you because I'm going to walk in the light. As you're in the light, Jesus. I'm going to live this life for you. And then our hands. Just preach the gospel. Preach the cross to yourself. Most of our unhappiness, C.J. Mahaney says, most, most of our unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you're listening to yourself more than preaching the gospel to yourself. Let's let that stink in for a second. I know we're right here at the end. What are you saying to yourself over and over again? What are you telling yourself constantly? It's not fair. It's not right. What's going to happen? What if this doesn't come through? What if this doesn't work out? What if I don't have my health at the end of the day? What if I don't have enough wealth at the end of the day? And we allow our feelings to trump our beliefs. We allow our grief and our guilt to overcome our confession. We let worry substitute for prayer. We do. And in our mind, we're always running this, this dialogue in our head. Preach the gospel. Grab your brain. Grab your mind and say, I'm not going to allow that to continue. I'm going to keep bringing it to the cross. And see the cost of the cross. And I'm going to see Jesus high and lifted up. And not going to let my circumstances or my feelings dictate my life. It's about as practical as you can get. Are you willing to do it? Are you willing to say, I'm not going to allow my mind to go down those paths. I'm going down the gospel path of Jesus and the life that he gives for me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Let's pray.
Father God, I, I don't stand here and speak these words because I'm the perfect authority on this because I get it right every time. There's so many times where I allow sin to take root in my mind. I ignore your, the presence of your Holy Spirit, the work of your Holy Spirit drawing me to himself. I choose comfort and influence and power and control over the work of the cross. And I think I can do things and manipulate things and make things happen through my own strength. When at the end of the day, I've, I've seen that movie play out in my, my mind and my, my life so many times that it never ends well. And it's only through the cross and it's only through the goodness of Jesus' sacrifice that I find life and find it to its fullest. And God, I pray for the person here who's down and discouraged. They've lost the joy of their salvation. The cross doesn't move them. Their eyes are weary right now because they've heard it, they've done it. They don't need to think about it anymore because they feel like they're good enough. God, I pray that you'll bring them to the cross for whatever means necessary, God, whether it's suffering to bring them back to the cross, whether it's a situation in their life that they think is they're on top of, that it's going to expose the sinfulness that they're living in the shadows. God, I pray that you'll bring this to light so you can draw them back to yourself, to the cross. God, I pray that we'll confess our sins. And God, I pray that we'll remember our sin, what it cost you. And God, maybe we be a church that has joy and a different perspective on life because we truly do trust in you, trust in the work of the cross, and we live that in Jesus' name.